Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. What often happens is brands will assume interest in the part of the other people and launch into convoluted arguments about why theirs is, is the right product. So I think many products fall down by assuming that level of interest on the audience's part. Just because you as a marketer think it, don't expect your audience to feel the same. Hello, Richard. Welcome to the podcast. Good to see you. I want to get this kicked off because you have a cool background. You wrote a best-selling book, The Choice Factory, which is one of my favorite books of all time. That's why I wanted to have you on. And you wrote a cool book that just came out, The Illusion of Choice, which I'm excited to dive deeper into. But I want to get, how do you get into this field of behavioral science, behavioral psychology? I think generally in life, when you get interested in a topic, sports or any kind of uh, uh, hobby, you generally just drift into it. But for me, there was a very specific moment when I first became interested in behavioral science. I was working at a marketing agency in London, in England, and we were working with the government as one of our clients. And the brief was, how do you get more people to donate blood? And I happened to be reading The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell at the same time as this brief. And at the back of that book, almost right at the end, there's a paragraph or two on two American psychologists called Latine and Darling. And they ran this whole series of experiments around uh, what came known as the bystander effect. So the argument is, if you ask loads of people for help, there is a diffusion of responsibility. The more people you ask, the less likely any one individual is to help. And I remember reading that and thinking, well, wait a second. This is exactly the problem we have with the blood service. We go out and ask everyone to donate blood in England. And unsurprisingly, most people leave it up to their neighbour. They just ignore the message. So having read about the bison effect, I went and spoke to the grave agency and suggested, why don't we test a tweak on the message, which was rather than blood stocks are low in England, please donate. It was a much more tailored, regionally specific message. Blood stocks are low in London, blood stocks are low in Birmingham, please donate. So trying to create this sense of personal responsibility. And even that, well, frankly, was a very crude tweak it's not going to win any creative awards but even that crude tweak to the messaging applying this bias led to a 10 15 say percent improvement in response rates in donation rates so that really that chance incident of reading the right book at the right time got me hooked i thought well okay that's an interesting study this bystander effect what else is out there and it slightly blew my mind that there were thousands upon thousands of these studies which seemed to be a lot of them, phenomenally relevant to marketing. So I thought that one of the things that marketing do could step change its performance was start spending more time immersing itself in behavioural science or psychology and matching the right experiment to the, to the right challenge. And that way, at least your tactics, your strategy are based on sound psychological evidence, sound insights into human nature rather than, rather than speculation. So you wrote The Choice Factory... It went best-selling 25 biases in there. What made you go into writing The Illusion of Choice? And then we'll go into some of the 16 and a half biases you have. The books follow 
a similar theme. Both of them follow an imaginary person through the day and that person faces various different commercial or personal decisions and I explain the decisions they make based on a, a psychological insight. So each chapter is about one theme within behavioural science, one theme within psychology. And each chapter follows a similar focus. Here's the academic evidence that shows this bias is of importance. Then there's the study that I've done often to show that it's relevant in marketing, relevant today. And then the bulk of each chapter is, well, now you know about these experimental findings, what can you do differently as a marketer? So that is consistent between both books, that kind of style and approach. The difference, though, is I've worked on 25 biases in the first book, The Choice Factory. Here I've selected a completely different set of insights and experiments from, from psychology. So it's 16 and a half, crucial number of the half, additional studies that I think are, are, are relevant for marketers. So it's a, it's a standalone book. Where did the 16 and a half come from? Because that's big ranges. This was a, a study that I read very soon after writing The Choice Factory. And I kicked myself slightly because the, the studies won by Schindler at Rutgers University. And I think it's 2006 study. So, you know, I came across it quite late. But in it, he shows people a deodorant ad. So it's a fake deodorant ad. And one claim within the ad is how much it reduces perspiration. And half the people he shows the ad to are told that it reduces perspiration by 50%, half that it reduces perspiration by either 47 or 53%. So half people get this general round number, half get a very precise, specific number. Schindler then asks everyone how accurate they think the claim is and how credible they think the claim is. And he sees a 5% improvement in credibility, a 10% improvement in accuracy when a precise number is used. So his argument is people learn over time that if someone speaks in round, vague terms, they tend to be unsure of themselves. If people know what they're talking about, they tend to be much more precise. I think you can actually see this from a personal level. If someone says to you, how old's your brother? How old's your sister? You'll say 27, 43. You'll give a very specific answer. If someone says, how old is your neighbour 10 doors down, you'll say, oh, they're in their 50s, they're in their 60s. If we know what we're talking about, we're precise. If we don't know what we're talking about, we generalise. And over time, listeners essentially fuse those two points. So they then assume, well, if someone is talking those precise numbers, they're likely to be more accurate, more credible. So I thought rather than just use these biases or give other marketers suggestions about how to use these biases, I should at least... uh, incorporate them into the book itself so that's why there's a that's why there's a half the half chapter is all about the power of of precision one thing i saw is in one of your ads for the book you'd used one of the the, that principle which i think it's been talked about in copywriting for a while but nobody's actually told like the psychological the the experimentation because for a while people have said specific cell like the specific and you even use it in your ad i think you put like thirty two thousand one hundred. There's yeah. copies. Oh, so you used your own principle on your own ad. I love it. Yes. Uh, so that's great. Although that has come back to bite me in that the today's the launch day and bloody Amazon has um, run out of copies. So I wish they'd had 32,131 rather than 1,331. So we, we may have been slightly optimistic in that, <laughs> in that copy. Um, there is a great related point, actually, to precision, which I think, because people might 
think that there is only a very specific way of using this idea. And there's actually something quite general that might be even more powerful to copyrights and brands. So there's this lovely old study from Ian Begg about concreteness versus abstraction. So he ran this study in 1972 where he reads out a list of 22-word phrases to people. And some of those phrases are what he calls concrete phrases, tangible, visualizable things like white horse. Others are abstract things like uh, subtle truth, things that you can't picture. And what Begg finds is that when he asks people later how many of the phrases they can remember, on average, people remember 9% of the abstract phrases, 36% of the concrete phrases. So he explains this by saying, look, the most powerful of senses that we have is vision. If you use language people can visualize, it will be memorable. If you use language that people can't picture, it's very, very forgettable. Now that, I think, has an even broader application than precision. A large proportion of advertisers today talk in very abstract terms. They talk about their quality. They talk about their trustworthiness. They talk about their provenance. Now that is too abstract for most people to remember. What you need to do as an advertiser is take those abstract objectives and then translate them into something very, very concrete that people can picture. So the classic Apple example is when they launched the iPod, every other brand tried to communicate the abstract benefit of memory by talking about 126 or 250 megabytes of memory. That's poor because it's very, you know you can't visualize it. What Apple did was talk about a thousand songs in your pocket. Now you can picture a pocket, it's visualizable. That makes it much, much more sticky. So I think that is a broader point that far more marketers could harness. One thing I heard, you were on a podcast, I not remember the name of the podcast, it was a great podcast episode, and you were talking about how a lot of advertisers these days don't use rhyming in their ads anymore. Uh, oh, yes, yes. Yeah, which is, I thought that was a really cool application too that people don't think because you can go down the story, but you were talking about a little backstory is that even 10, 15 years ago, more people were using rhyme so people could remember the ads. And now you see a lot of marketing ads that don't even use it anymore. So could you go into why rhymes work and then also like how marketers should think about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you're absolutely right. So I went to the an archive, a newspaper archive in, in Britain, went all the way back through hundreds of newspapers, all the way back to the 1970s. And what you see is this very, very clear decline in the number of ads that use rhymes. A huge decline. It's quite a rare thing to be seen, whereas back in the 1970s, very prominent, regular, common occurrence for advertisers to have a rhyming strap. Like, that's problematic from a believability and memory point of view. So there's a classic study from two psychologists at Lafayette College, 1999, and then they did a follow-up in 2000. Uh, McGlone and not 100% sure on the pronunciation of uh, topic bash, I think is the way to say it. But they did this very simple study, lovely, clean study, recruit loads of people, give them a list of fake proverbs. So one person might get woes unite enemies. That's the non-rhyming version. Another person gets woes unite foes. Everyone is then asked, how believable do you think the uh, proverbs are? 
and I think it's a 30% higher level of believability on the you know, seven point, whatever it was, scale that they um, measured it on. The statements that rhymed are judged by that group to be 30% more believable than essentially the same statement that doesn't rhyme by, by the other group. Now, what's fascinating is if you then put people on the spot and ask them why they think the proverb is believable, everyone talks about the content. But in the structure of the experiment they've created, you can see it's not the content that's driving that, or not just the content that's driving that believability. It's the rhyme. It's basically the same sentiment if it's in a rhyming form, more believable than if it's not. But people are loath to admit that. They claim that the rhyme has nothing to do with the level of believability. Now, McGlone and Toffigash explain this finding by saying essentially people are confusing ease of processing with truthfulness. Because generally, if we've heard saying lots of times tends to be true, it tends to be very easy for us to mentally process. Rhyme is essentially a shortcut to that ease of processing, and therefore it gets conflated with the truth. So that's the original academic study. A colleague and I then did a quite a fast and frugal rerun of that study, but not interested in believability. We were int- interested in memorability. So gave a load of people the fake proverbs at the beginning of the day, half rhyming, half non-rhyming, went and found them at the end of the day and asked them what they could remember. And we found that people were twice as likely to remember the rhyming phrases as, as the non-rhyming ones. So you have this tactic that is shown to be capable of boosting believability and massively boosting memorability. But you're in a strange situation in which the industry has begun to ignore it. And I think what happened here is there is a division of interests between the agency creating the ads and the end brand. Because anyone who acts as a consultant to another industry, and that's I think what many agencies are, they are under pressure to make their recommendations look complicated because that justifies their fees. It's a very messy way of actually understanding, or it's very hard to understand what genuinely drove sales. So it's the appearance of sophistication that people are often rewarded for. So I think it leads to the advertising industry prioritising techniques that look sophisticated rather than techniques that are effective. And rhyme, unfortunately, is effective, but definitely doesn't look sophisticated. So it gets underused, I think, in big agencies and by big brands. I see this on social media a lot because I see what happens on social media that if you put out an idea and it's really simple, but it will help a lot of people, you looked at someone who isn't as smart as someone who put something that's super complex and nobody understands. It doesn't get a lot of engagement, but you wrote such a complex idea that is theoretical that hasn't been tested or anything. So like what I see is the people who are more like VPs of marketing or CMOs look down on people giving advice that like, like simple advice like this, like, Hey, I I suggest you put rhymes in your ads because rhymes get remembered. That'll be a simple advice, but they want to go so in depth in the advice because it doesn't look like, you know, that much stuff because you can't say something very simple, um, which is so funny because it's counterintuitive. Sometimes the most simple advice is the best advice out there. 
you often find a division between people in big bureaucratic organizations where success is demonstrating intelligence and sophistication. And that I think leads to overly complex answers versus people who are very quickly and immediately rewarded by the success of the, you know, the brand they own, or, uh, there's some kind of metric that, that, that links sales directly to their, um, uh, wage. And those people tend to prefer simple, but effective approaches. Yeah. It's a fascinating difference. I think between that entrepreneur and then the bureaucrat. Yeah, the entrepreneur just wants to get the the result versus like someone's trying to play the political game in inside of an organization too. It's funny. It's the difference between res result driven marketing and then just sounding the best in your organization. The only issue sometimes with results driven marketing is you have to be equally influenced in the long and the short term to be a very effective marketer. The danger sometimes is the short term is very, very easy to monitor and a longer term metrics can be a bit more complicated. So people sometimes overemphasize that short term metric. We can take you down the overly price and promotional led approach, which is brilliant for a short period of time, but eventually trains the end user that you're not a particularly valuable product. Yeah, I'm I'm a hundred percent into that. I, I, it's also I think Rory says this in his book about I like data is in the path. So like if you like try to do things about based on data and too results driven, you can't think of like those creative, illogical ideas that need to be tested that take longer to put in, but actually will have a longer effect in your marketing. There's a term that I work for this company called Workweek, but they, the CEO always calls about, people always like think about putting out a post. They only think about like, how positive signaling they're going to the market, but they never think about does that email negatively signal yourself to the market? Did that, if you send an extra two emails, is it negatively signaling to the market? Is there a negative signaling in the market that you do? Because you could say something and it can actually negatively signal to your audience. And that's what happened in the long term. Too much negative signaling could actually ruin your audience. That's a great point. You know, it's, if you are sending out emails to your customers, it's very easy to just monitor, very easy but mistaken, to monitor how many responses and sales you get. That's very clear, the sales from those emails. But as you say, the person at the other end who's absolutely aggravated, but then doesn't act on it, is just not captured in the that simple data bucket. So be either putting in place ways to capture sentiment or putting in place a kind of counterbalancing approach, I think, is, is is crucial. I went through your ads as you read it, and I'm guessing you use the psychological bias in all of them. So I'm going to go. I want to ask you because one of my favorite ones that you've written for the ad for your book is the one that says "Feel free to ignore this poster." I think that was brilliant. Oh, yeah. that, one. that was because I was like, I was like, I want to ignore this, but you said "Feel free," so now I want to read this, and I didn't even. I knew what you were doing, but it made me want to read it, even though I knew what you were doing. So could you go into like what made you write that and what is like the psychological bias that made me want to read that? The posters were written by a guy called Chris Parker. So he works at the publisher. So he had a lovely idea of, well, look, when we're going to create these ads, why don't we use a, one bias from the book, the heart of each of the different bits of copy? 
So he was the one that came up with those uh, sourcing so really line. Yeah, yeah, really nice, really nice. Yeah. Uh, and that one is is, is fascinating because it draws on an idea called uh, reactants. So there's an old, I think he's at the University of Texas, but um, oh, sorry, he's certainly Texas, I think, uh, Pennebacher. Uh, he comes up with this idea called reactants. So he works for the university, um, puts up signs in toilets at universities, and sometimes they say, please don't graffiti. Other times, big capital letters, exclamation marks, do not graffiti. And he rotates these signs every, say, four hours. And he then monitors how much graffiti there is when each sign is up. And he finds there's about twice as much graffiti when the less polite sign is up, when the authoritarian sign is up. So his argument is people really value a sense of control in their life, a sense of agency. If that rest feels restricted, people will push back and often the message you have will, will, will backfire. Now, like all experiments, there are nuances to this. Pennebacher found that people are particularly likely to ignore a message or to do the exact opposite of what the message asks if they fail, there's a power imbalance. So if someone of high authority is overly authoritarian in their request, people will often look at ways of uh, passively or actively resisting. So that's the broad principle of reactants. What's interesting for marketers is there are some lovely, very simple techniques that you can apply either one-to-one -one or in your communications to get around that. There is a French psychologist, and again, I might butcher the pronunciation, I think it's called Kagen, it's the, uh, the name. And he's got a slightly strange study, goes up to people on the street and says, please can I have some coins, I need to take the bus. Other times he goes up to people and says, please may I have some coins, I need to take the bus but you are free to refuse or accept. And what he finds is that people are significantly more likely to give him money in the second condition, and they are likely to give more money in the second condition. He argues this is a reflection of reactance. If you remind people of their ability, their, the fact that they're in control, they're more likely to agree to a, a request. Now, what's particularly fascinating about that study is... You could say from a logical perspective, everyone always had that right to say no. You know, if a beggar comes up to you, you don't have to give the money. But what Kagen says is it's not whether or not that right exists. It's if you draw attention to it as a requester. So often when we are negotiating or when we're trying to change people's behavior, we try and make our argument as convincing as possible. We don't want to draw attention to the fact that someone can walk away. Kagen says that's a mistake tell the other person, you know, you're free to accept this offer or not. That makes them feel less pressured and it can often lead to a, a, a positive result. I think this goes into one other thing you said also on a podcast about like making things less friction. I know there's like, obviously that with more friction, people, you could use more friction in the sense if it's like a more exclusive offering or if they want less people to come in the funnel but you want more people to go through like the pain of going through it. but i want to go into like the less friction because that's also a little bit of like in a conversation when you give someone ability to go out that feels like there's less friction for me to like get out of the conversation or not out of the conversation when richard thaler who won the nobel prize 
a couple of years ago, and Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in 2002, are asked to say, what's the single biggest thing that you've learned about behavioural science or human nature from all these experiments you've run? What they both often say is, make it easy. They make the argument that people trying to change the behaviour of others often make a mistake. They think the way to change behaviour is to motivate the other party to want to change and of course that can have a big impact but experiment after experiment shows often the bigger way to change behavior is to think what are the small barriers that are stopping that person behaving the way that i want and put more effort into removing those little hurdles those little barriers because even seemingly inconsequential hurdles can have a big effect on behavior so what kahneman argues is Firstly, it's often more effective to change behaviour by removing friction. And then secondly, he makes a really strong, impassioned case that most marketers, most people interested in behaviour change, underestimate the scale of the impact you get from removing friction. Some marketers have been very good at this. You know, Amazon's the poster child for removing friction. You know, one-click purchasing, phenomenally effective. Netflix did some really interesting things where they flipped from uh, expecting people to click to watch the next programme then they move to default autoplay. You have to click not to watch the next program. They have really, really small changes that have a, a disproportionate effect. So as a marketer, the key point here would be go through your customer journey. Think about all the different little bits of blockages along the way, and then put a larger proportion of your time, your energy, your budget into removing them. And that would be a, a really simple way of, of, of harnessing behavioral science. I want to ask you what is the... One of your your top favorite studies that you wrote in the the book, because um, I always like to see which one you had the most fun writing about. It's easier to answer that on the choice factor, but I will answer it for the illusion of trust. On the choice factor, it's very very easy. I love love the bias around the pratfall effect. This idea that people who admit a flaw become more appealing. So I think that's fascinating. Illusion of choice. There's probably not a standout bias, but if I was forced to pick, I think some of the studies about fairness are really interesting because before I started writing it, I didn't have much of an appreciation of that. There's a lovely study from 1996, I think, by Blount, Sally Blount and Max Baseman. I think we're at Northwestern at the time. And really simple study. It does use students, but the principles have been shown elsewhere. Um, people arrive on campus thinks the first or early in their uh, university uh, days, Blount goes up to them and says, look, we're going to run some experiments tomorrow at my psychology lab. Will you come and do 40 minutes of work? And if you do, I'll pay you $7. And 72% of people agree to take part. Next group of people, they give them a very similar offer, not exactly the same, a similar offer. They go up to this next group of people and say, will you come to our lab, do 40 minutes of maths puzzles, and if you do, we will pay you $8. But, and here comes the little white light, they say we were paying other people earlier in the, the day $10. Now, if you look to this through just an economics lens, and not a psychology lens, just an economics lens, you might think, okay, well, the second group, they're getting paid more. They should be more motivated to want to come. The proportion of people should rise. But, a psychologist would say, well, that's actually unlikely to happen because people are not just interested in maximising their financial benefits from a situation. They're also 
deeply influenced by the principle of fairness. And what happens is if people think they're going to get $8, but others got 10 they would rather walk away from what is a very profitable opportunity. This was in 1996, after all. They'd rather, what in Britain would say, they'd rather cut off their nose to spite their face. They'd rather walk away from a profitable opportunity than bear the idea that others got an even better deal. Now, that I find fascinating because you see it in humans, as their study showed, but also you see it in animals. You know, there are some lovely tests online. People like Franz de Waal have run which show you can get a capuchin monkey to perform basic tasks if you pay it for it in, 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 with a cucumber every time. He has this lovely video where he shows if you then introduce a second mon- monkey into the eyesight of the first monkey and start paying that second monkey with a higher uh, valued property like grapes, the first monkey will absolutely lose its rag. The idea that it is still meant to be getting paid this poxy little cucumber for a task, it won't accept it any longer. That's amazing when you see an animal that we had a shared ancestor with three million years ago showing the same characteristics as ourselves. There's fairness around people, but I also think there's like fairness in yourself because I think a lot of people, even when they got the sink, they got laid off from a job or they got fired, they will not go take a job that's like 20K less because they think it's unfair because they were used to being paid a lot more. Which is funny because they, they even think in this sub like, I should be fairly paid, even though they'd rather have zero dollars coming in or zero pounds coming in than actually take a job that's 20K less. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that there's a few interesting points. There's the point of relativity. You know, once we've had this benchmark in our mind, we compare everything with that, not with, you know, what was arguably the more important situation, current reality. But there's an, there's an amazing set of experiments. And I can't remember if I go into this in, in the book or not. There's an idea called the ultimatum game, which came around in the 80s. And in it, they originally did it for students, but then they developed it outside, where the basic principle was you'd give one person, say, $10. And that person was part of a pair. This pair would never meet. The person with the $10 just had to decide, how is the money going to be split? And the other person in the pair, which let's say sitting in a different room, they are told that decision. So let's say I decide, okay, I'm going to keep $8 and give the other person two. When I've made that decision, I can never change it. The next person, all they can do is either accept the offer as it stands, there's no haggling, or say, not accepting that offer, and both parties get zero. And when that study was first done, I think it was by word of goof back in the 80s, it was something like 30% of people would say no to a 40% split of a small amount of cash. Now that is, I think, similar to what you're saying. People would rather have nothing than accept an unfairness. What's fascinating about that study is it was originally criticised for involving very small sums of money involving students. So what some researchers went and did was go uh, to the third world, go and find countries where $100 was a huge amount of money re-ran the studies, and yes, people were more likely to accept a fair slip, but there was still a significant portion who would turn down a month's salary or a week's salary if they felt the other party was essentially trying to take advantage of them. So it's, it's a really important driver of behaviour, and I think one that brands can use more often. Don't just try and sell the benefit of your product. 
try and position your competitor as behaving unfairly. That's kind of a big way, I think, of harnessing the idea. Or, super tactically, on your website, be very, very careful about having a discount code box. You can imagine you're on a website, you found a pair of trainers, $100, you love them, think they're amazing, you're going to buy them. You go through all the way to check out, just as about to click buy, there is a little box above that buy button which says, add your discount code here. According to the principle of fairness, what people are going to be thinking is, I'm no longer happy with these trainers because that discount code box tells me other people are getting a better deal. And what will probably happen is people will leave the site or go and look for a, a voucher code. So think about getting rid of the box or making it really recessive, like a tiny little link so only people who are really, really looking for it, people with codes, will find it. Or maybe just show those discount code boxes to people who you've sent there via an affiliate. Whenever there's like an op- opposite effect too, because I think, let's say if it's like a more of a high-end product, if someone feels like that product was going to be discounted, some people would rather play full price than play a discounted thing because they think they're getting like a higher status thing. Like, so if you show yeah, a discount. Uh, uh, absolutely. I mean, there's phenomenal links between price and perceived quality. Uh, one of my favorite studies is from Baba Shiv, who's at Stanford. Lovely, simple study. Five different bottles of wine. Each has a prominent price label. But the twist in the experiment is that one of the wines is repeated. So you have people sipping, let's say a Merlot, thinking it comes from a $5 bottle and saying it's mediocre. Two minutes later, they'll take a sip of what is exactly the same liquid, but they think it comes from a $45 bottle. And not only will they give it qualitatively better ratings, when they quantify they score the wine 0 to 10. They rate it 70% higher when they think it comes out of a $45 bottle rather than a $5 bottle. Shiv says price sets our expectation for product and then that expectation will affect our actual experience of the product. So absolutely, you as a brand should be very, very concerned about excessive discounting because you're essentially teaching your customer that your product isn't worth much. And I think even as a if you are selling a consultancy service or services to a professionally, be very careful about thinking that you will drum up more interest by reducing your prices. Because sometimes if someone has an important problem, they think it's really serious. If you come in at too low a rate, they will assume your poor quality and think you're not right for the job. A lot of people don't think how much a little tweak in price could change the mentality of a consumer, which is... It's crazy, and this is, comes back to what you've done in your study. One of my favorite ones that you wrote in your book was, because uh, I think it just goes back to, on the choice factor, it goes back to what we were talking about before is the curse of knowledge. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you see this as like a consumer behavior, but you also see it as like peers. Like I think a lot of peers think just because something is said and I know it, it becomes like a less obsolete idea now when it apparently like to the masses, it's not less up. So like we, we can go into the bias a little but It's just funny because just because you know, it doesn't mean that 99,000 other people don't actually know what you're talking about. The danger is anyone who works in marketing, anyone who works for a brand has a very different set of experiences from the general public. If you work on a 
toilet paper brand and you spend 40 hours a week thinking about that toilet paper, the person you're marketing to spends a minute a week, if that, 10 seconds uh, a week thinking about what particular brand they want. So you end up with, yes, I think very different levels of interest. And what often happens is brands will assume interest on the part of the other people and launch into convoluted arguments about why theirs is, is the right product. So I think many products fall down by assuming that level of interest on the audience's part. Just because you as a marketer think it, don't expect your audience to feel the same. One thing that I've been saying for a long time is that marketers should learn behavioral science. They should learn the, this topic. Why do you think that in schools and when you're starting in marketing, this hasn't been more broadly adopted for marketers to learn coming out of college? Because I think it's so foundational to help you in the long run be successful in marketing, but so many people don't take the time to do it or so many people don't teach it. And I wonder if a lot of it comes back to how we run research in marketing. An awful lot of research is direct questioning of consumers. Focus groups, surveys. Why did you buy that lager? Why did you buy those sneakers, traders? The problem with that is psychologists believe that most people don't know their own motivations. There's a wonderful University of Virginia psychologist called Timothy Wilson who says we are strangers to ourselves. So the problem is if you put someone on the spot, what they will do is come up with plausible post-rationalizations for their behavior. Normally, arguments that make them look like a very sensible, logical, deep thinker. What I think we should do is set up more test and control experiments. You know, all the experiments we've discussed today, the psychologist never went and said to people, you know, which of these two wages would you prefer? $7, everyone gets it. $8, other people got 10 If they asked in that, direct comparison way most people will behave like logical sensible calculating machines that's how i'd prefer the larger number however that's not how life works normally when you're in a situation you don't know all the counterfactuals so i think much of the underuse of behavioral science is based on people being too reliant on claim data And the problem with that is what people say motivates them and what actually motivates them are wildly different things. So if anything we've discussed today is of interest, well, what listeners should do is set up a simple A-B test. Don't take my word for all these biases. Set up a simple A-B test. If you've got 20 pharmacists that you own, 10 of them run message A, 10 of them run message B, and then monitor the, the success. And I'd be confident that you'll have a reasonable strike rate if you use behavioural science. Because you're basing your ideas on peer-reviewed, observed experiments rather than sheer speculation. What is a marketing hill you would die on? Well, the firstly, the broad topic of behavioural science being relevant, I think, would be one. The second would be this prioritisation of observed over claimed data. I think that would be that would be something else. And maybe... Maybe the third one of customers are far more socially driven than we believe. You know, we like to believe we are all deeply individualistic, but an awful lot of our behavior is driven by what we think other people are doing. So yeah, behavioral science being important, the validity of 
observed data over claimed data. And then thirdly, that we are a, a social species. One thing I always say to people is you have to understand your customer um, and your audience. But I want to get from your point of view, what are some ways you recommend people doing this? A lot of people say that term, understand your audience. But what does understanding your audience actually mean? Yeah, that, I think that's a great question because no one, you know, whatever area you work in, no one would disagree with that. I think the problem is what most people would rush to do is then question their customer and say, you know, why did you buy your lager? Why did you buy your sneakers? And people talk about, oh, it's price, it was quality. What they won't do is talk about these tiny little irrational biases that, that affect their behavior. If you genuinely want to understand your customer, direct questioning creates as many problems as it answers. And what you should do is either a field experiment, this kind of A-B testing, or even more simply, there is a wonderful technique called monadic testing. So I'll give you an example of a monadic test I run just to explain it. I worked with Michael Aaron Flicker, Xenocide, recruited 282 people, and half of them we said, Imagine you're in a supermarket and you see some Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, $18.99 for 12 bottles. How good value do you think it is? And 13.7% of people thought it was good or great value. Next group of people, exactly the same product, same volume of bottles and same price, $18.99. But we also said that's the same as $1.58 a bottle. In that scenario, you get a more than doubling of people who think this beer is good or great value, 28%. What's interesting about that is, firstly, as a brand, you can apply it very easily. Stop drawing attention just to your total large price. Draw attention to your subunits, your cost per day, your cost per can, your cost per bag, if it's uh, chips. The more you break down your price, the better value you'll be perceived, even if the total headline price doesn't change. But why I really wanted to mention it was the technique. You can apply that on your survey at no cost, very, very simply. You randomize people into two different scenarios. You just change one variable and any difference in performance and belief you attribute back to the single change variable. Very much what digital marketers do. But I think the difference is most digital marketers, when they do A-B tests, they test the final creative. I think you can take that same principle of A-B testing but essentially use it in research, test the underlying driver of behavior. And if you do it through that methodology, it will flush out all sorts of tiny little tweaks you can apply to your marketing to make it more effective. That's also awesome advice. I think a lot of people, they do their research too late where they've already done these two pages and they just, which one is better? Instead of yeah. figuring out if I do this more tweak before I even give the final how what is the behavioral changes and then this whole tweak and then get to the final and then you could test maybe that one line of copy change or that color change or stuff like that but understand why people are doing things on your website first and then go make the change i think that's brilliant i think people don't do research earlier if you do it late you often have a short shelf life with the findings mm. i'm gonna give you a shout out because i think everybody who's listening should go one, read The Choice Factory because it's an amazing book. But now that it is a second book, and I, I just bought it today because it is available in the U.S. Um, so ah, fantastic. In the, in the U.K., it's on... Uh, I, I, 
I saw it was not available. And I was getting scared because I went on there. I was like, I went there. I probably should have said more of that. Yeah. 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 Well, if people are interested, it'd be great if they want to buy the illusion of choice. I think the thing I would stress about it is I've tried to keep things as simple as possible. I get frustrated. If you read the original papers by academics, it's unnecessarily complicated and that's very frustrating. So I've kept it very, very simple. And the focus is on what you practically do differently. So it's not just a series of academic studies. What I try and do is show you how brands have used these ideas and what you could do differently. And then finally, there's some new data in there. There's quite a lot of my own experiments I've run to show these ideas are valid in the commercial sector. Yeah, so if you want to level up in marketing, go get this book too. If you want to start acting like the smartest person in the room, go get this book because this will help you become a smarter marketer. And three, like we said earlier, all marketers should learn this topic. It's not everything your customers do is what you actually think they do. And there's reasons we're humans. We are programmed like this. We can't change these programs. Uh, both the choice factory and the illusion of choice are great books to go dive into and that, the choice factory was great I, I can't wait to read the next book so um thank you so much thank you very much thanks so much for listening tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators if you haven't already please consider subscribing to the marketing millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating It helps bring more marketers into our community.